då har jag lyssnat önske alla sammen välkommen hit idag eh, till Afrika nå. Vi ska snacka om valget som har varit i Nigeria. Det blir väldigt väldigt spännande. Vi är er fra fellesrådet fra för Afrika. De som har arrangerat dette arrangementet er Nigeria-utvalget, som ikke består av så fryktelig mange mennesker akkurat nå. Så hvis det er noen som kunne tenke sig å være med, som har interesse for Nigeria av en eller grund eller vad som helst, det trenger ikke å være noe spesielt eh, egentlig det hele tatt. Men vi jobber med Nigeria, for eksempel å lage arrangementer som dette her, som heter Afrika Nå, som Fellesrådet har en gang i måneden, siste onsdag i måneden, på, her på Kulturhuset. Eller så skriver vi artikler til nettsiden, eller skolerer oss selv, eller holder oss rett og slett bare oppsatert på det som sker i Nigeria. Så vi lærer veldig mye selv, og så prøver vi å lære andre litt også. Ellers så är er det jo Fellesrådet for Afrika, som man også veldig gärna må være medlem i. Det kan man göra på nettsidene som är er Johan? Afrika.no Denne panelsamtalen kommer til bli spilt in som en podcast, så den må dere veldig gjerne høre på og dele videre til andre. Og i tillegg så vil jeg informere om det tilfredet skulle stille noen spørsmål, så vet dere det. Camilla skal være vår ordstyrer i dag, så da gir jeg bare mikrofonen videre. Vær så god. Takk. Uh, I think I'll switch to uh, our, our tribal language here. Um, my name is Camilla. I, um, I'm a researcher where Nigeria is just part of my research. Uh, and I'm really excited to be here, and I have to congratulate the Norwegian Council for having this dream team of a panel. Um, uh, we have three excellent people here, all of them just back from Nigeria, follow the elections uh, closely. Uh, what we'll do now, we'll um, just um, have half an hour where the three panelists will have about 10 minutes each to give the reflections of the elections and uh, look a bit ahead. And after that, we'll have a bit of a conversation here before we open the floor uh, for questions. So I see there's quite a lot of you who, who know a lot and follow the Nigeria issue closely. Uh, to introduce the panel from uh, my far left is uh, Victor Adetola, who's uh, head of research at the Nordic Africa Institute. Uh, he's a political scientist by training, and he has been working on a lot of issues from local, national to international issues on Nigeria, from questions of, of resource management, conflict, and democracy, among others. Um, uh, and then we have the director of uh, Center for Democracy and Development in West Africa, Idayat Hassan. Uh, she's a lawyer by training and has worked on also a lot of issues from corruption, democracy, peace and uh, reconciliation. Um, and uh, she's also head of the CDD that has partly worked with the Norwegian Council of Africa with, uh, from the 90s on and off. Uh, but the organization has also been referred to as one of the highlights of, uh, of civil society's role in democracy by following the elections 
in 2015 as well as this year, particularly. Uh, so, and I'm also happy to have a woman in the panel, uh, especially given the patriarchal and male-dominated <laughs> politics of Nigeria. There's very few women who have been active in politics as candidates, but all the more interesting to have women as analysts on the side. And then last but not least, Norwegian ambassador Jens Petter Schemprud, uh, who has a long uh, story of uh, being ambassador in different countries currently for Nigeria, but also uh, neighboring countries, Benin, Togo, and uh, Cameroon. Uh, uh, he's a diplomat, by, but lawyer by profession, but also a comrade by friends. I was afraid you were going to say from the far left to the, <laughs> to far, the far right. right. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'll give the floor to you, Victor, first. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think that the first thing I, I rather say is to say thank you uh, to my host for bringing me back here again. And always to come and talk about Nigeria, which is interesting for me. And again, to note the increasing significance or importance of Nigeria to the international community. And I think uh, Norway is taking uh, a lead in, in recognizing this and also uh, promoting friendship I mean, for the mutual interest uh, of our two great countries. Having said that, uh, is to also, by way of background, to let us uh, reflect on the fact that uh, the 2019 presidential election uh, was the fifth since uh, 1999 when Nigeria returned to civil rule, which again is very significant and suggests uh, the, the consistency in the choice of the people for democracy as against any other form of government. And another point to note, thinking about the global context of that, is to recognize and acknowledge the fact that what is happening in Nigeria as indicates uh, the global currents, both in terms of the preference for democracy and also the need to, to rethink the essence of liberal democracy and possibly to reflect deeper on electoral democracy as distinct from democratic governance. I think these are issues uh, that we need to put together and to see that uh, what happened on 23rd, and which may also happen in the subsequent election, may help us to start making a distinction between the election itself and governance uh, by way. Having said that, it's also to bring out the fact that uh, even though the, the voters turn out, which I think has been put roughly at uh, 35%, reflect a decline. And uh, for those who are looking at the issue, may readily suggest uh, what are the people saying in terms of the, the behavioral pattern of the voters? Does this suggest apathy per se? Or is it because the election was postponed? I think a whole lot of government of uh, factors will be responsible for that. Are the people saying, yes, election is good, but we want something better? 
That's a possibility. Who are the people who actually voted and people who did not vote? And that connects with the fact that uh, uh, how much of data, reliable data, can we get from the electoral procedure, electoral behavior of Nigeria that can make us do an analysis that can help future processes. I think this is another thing that uh, one would want to know. Another thing is the, the new thing, which may not be new in this part of the world, the introduction of technology into electoral process, which uh, very few African countries have perfected. I think uh, since, since 2015, it was uh, significantly introduced in the Nigerian process, and a lot of legal issues came out of that. But uh, I think by the time India will talk about that, I think there are so many unresolved issues around the use of yeah, smart card reader and all our other technology-related processes, uh, which uh, for me, as an illiterate in this sector, <laughs> I will say that uh, it reflects the level of development in the society. And this is where I regularly argue with my colleague, both in the academia and civil society, that look, we cannot isolate the electoral process and electoral system from the entire system. So if we look at the level of development in the society uh, and look at what happened in terms of the use of ICT, I think there is a parallel. I jokingly asked one of my colleagues who was, oh, the card reader was not working. Then I asked him, how many times has your ATM card failed you? <laughs> <laughs> so how many times have you received consistent electricity supply in your house? And he said, oh, some other names were missing from the register. And I said, oh, can you give me the population of your local government? What am I saying that... Uh, why we recognize that there are technical hitches here and there? We're talking about a society that we are still struggling with some basic data. If, for instance, all bad, all debts registered, maybe we will not be talking about the need for a PVC. Then you will know when you turn 18 and you can become <laughs> eligible to vote. But that is just by the way. My own take on that is that uh, there are questions around the introduction of ICT into the electoral process that needs to be revisited in such a way uh, that it will not suggest some negative uh, 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 development. Another thing from the presidential election is, uh, I would say, some kind of accommodation, increased space for the youth, this particular election. And I think he started with the Not Too Young to Vote uh, Act now, uh, which was, we can say, a formal recognition of that. And I think a lot of pressure went into that. How well that has played out is another thing. But uh, on the other side, I have some concern now which I want to throw up here. One issue for me is the actors. And talking about the actors, I want to talk first about the political parties. The political parties are still largely at a very rudimentary level of political culture. 
and uh, perhaps because they have to play very, very prominent role. And you cannot act beyond what you know and what you can do. I think that has been responsible for a lot of drawback in the electoral system. And I think, uh, I'm not holding for INEC, I think INEC, the electoral body, ha consistently has been pointing that, look, the political parties, the political parties need to, but beyond that also, we have other actors. We have the civil society itself. And for me, both the civil society, and by extension also, the donor community and the international community, they have turned to regard election as an epiphenomenon. Everybody become active when the election is around. Uh, I used to work for, for a few of the development partners, and I see around the election there's money to be, oh, you have to do this work, you have to do that. And my concern has always been, why not do that for the governance process itself? Why not be on ground to monitor, to contribute, to impact on the governance process that has direct impact on the life of Nigeria? rather than wait for the period of election. What am I saying about the civil society? Hardly do you get civil society that stay on ground to work on governance process until there's an election. Maybe that is when the donor community is ready to put money in to make some diplomatic capital. I don't know. But that is what I have observed. Of course, you also have the media. For the past two weeks, you find out the media pointing, even when I was in the country, more than more than six media houses, as Nigeria contacted me to talk about election. They've never contacted me to talk about other things before now. <laughs> so and I say, okay, oh, the verdict, 2019 verdict, 2010, why not have governance 2019 before verdict 2019? <laughs> so these are issues I think, the quality of the actors are issues we really need to look at. Of course, the logistics, and other technical issues, like I mentioned, card reader. Talking about women representation, I'm not sure we have recorded significant improvement in that. Why that, I still don't know. But I have a, a lot of clips of women dancing our campaign, and I was asking myself, have we reduced women representation, women participation in politics to mere dancing around, and I mean, they have very beautiful clothes, attire on during campaign, but what happens beyond that? How come that the, this gender category have not been able to transform that to active engagement through negotiation? These are things, and of course, two points again I have identified for further discussion is violence. I think we've seen a gradual increase from 2015 especially on the election day, and it's, uh, it's, it's becoming uh, something that uh, one can, uh, some very, very terrible sights through the election, people being burned down, you know, people being caught. I think uh, these are things that we thought we have forgotten after 20, 2011 election. And uh, around this, I don't have uh, competence to speak so much about this, but I think they will do that. They still need to look at the legal framework for election administration in Nigeria. I think there are a few things that have not been clear there. And I, I, I know that one or two bills that are still there, 
to be to be addressed in the House. But beyond the 2019 presidential election, what happens? Will the new administration or incoming administration be able to turn the votes to hope for Nigerians? And for that to happen, that means the presidency will need to do quite a lot of things from looking inward and looking at, at the question that I've asked myself a couple of times, what capacity is required to put proper governance in place after this election? Beyond the personality of Buhari. Because if you look at this election and you, we do a thorough review, it's not so much of issue as it is the personality. Oh, Buhari represent the integrity, the new rising national consciousness for integrity in Nigerian politics, yeah. But what about other things that require to put governance in place? I think uh, the new incoming presidency will need to look at that. Are we looking forward to a tough presidency who is not scared of his second term and who wants to step on any toes at all? Maybe that is our probability. Or we want to see a continuity and change. If we take the 2019 presidential election as a referendum on Buhari's administration, are we thinking of a presidency that will be more responsive to the yearning of the people? I think I'll stop here and during the Q&A we address a few questions. Thank you. Um, good evening, everybody. Um, Idayat Hassan, and I'm very happy to be here because the last time my predecessor was here, I was very jealous, and I was like, why did he come after the elections to speak? So, uh, so I was very happy when I received the invite, and I was like, yes, yes, yes. 2019, it's a diet, and it's good to be here, actually, after a very stressful weekend, uh, monitoring the votes back home, and it's good to have reflections and also see that we are not alone. People are very interested in what happens in Nigeria, particularly in the Nordic region. But these elections that we are talking about, it has its negative if you are looking at the papers the last couple of days, but also it has its positive, and always we want to see positive in things that is actually happening on the continent and in countries like Nigeria. It's important to note that this 2019 will be the 20, will mark 20 years of uninterrupted democracy in Nigeria. That is the longest so far in the history of the country. And I think the most has been between six years, another like around uh, five years, not even four years plus, and now a whole 20 years, six, sixth consecutive elections, and one of the biggest, if not the biggest elections in Africa's history with over 84 million, 4,000, and like 26 registered voters. That's very huge itself. And the largest number of political parties in the history of Nigeria, 91 political parties, 73 fielding presidential candidates. The most, the largest has been 20 in previous elections, now 73 on the ballot. But one of the positives is also that 
when you look at the voters register, you have over 51% of the registered voters as young people between the ages of 18 and 35 as defined, as youth is defined in Nigeria. And you go further again, you find that the most of these people are between the ages of 18 and 25 and largely students in tertiary institutions. So there are positives when you look at the demography, when you look at the development of the electoral system in itself. But uh, Professor Aditula has given some context and most people will be interested in knowing what happened. The election is already won and lost to many. And importantly, this will not be the first time the two contenders in these elections are facing each other. The first contest was in 2007 when they came a distant second and a distant third. In 2014, again, they faced each other during the APC presidential primary. And finally, they had another battle this weekend. And President Muhammadu Buhari, the incumbent, won with over 3 million votes, almost 4 million votes that he actually uh, won with, with the with the opponents pulling over 11 million 200 and something, far less expected because most of us have projected that it's going to be a closer election. But it's also an election which has witnessed the unprecedented cancellation of votes in the country, aside from sports um, balloting itself. These elections are also very interesting because we thought ethnicity and religion would play no factor in the elections, being that the two candidates are both Muslims, they are both Fulani, and they are from Northern Nigeria. So the issue of ethnicity, which drives contest, will not future in the elections. But unfortunately, when you look at the, when you look at the map, and you see the way the vote went, you find a lot of bifurcation, largely between the North and the South, of the country. And this might be, it might not look important, but they are very, very important for a host of reasons and for what will happen in the coming year. Because this map has actually shown and made uh, President Buhari to be viewed more as a sectional leader, either true or not. It's also important to note that, yes, three issues drove the elections, the same as in 2015 which is security, economy, and corruption. But importantly, disinformation, as we are in the global affair, was a very strong determinant of the elections. In fact, I always joke with colleagues and say that whosoever win these elections uh, would have deployed the most of disinformation campaign, and it brought a different uh, phenomenon. In 2015, it was more, more about the Cambridge Analytical and Co., but now it became localized, as well as the international footprint will be there when you look at the quality of videos produced in small nuggets compared to 2015 when we had one hour, 55 minutes. Now it's two minutes. Before the end of the elections, it became one minute 37, the longest video you could actually look at. And it tells you that we live in a global village and governance is also importantly going to be that. Now, the election has been rejected by the opposition and they've rejected the elections due to a host of reasons which he has actually mentioned. One is the logistics. It's something that everybody agreed 
was a challenge in these elections, including us at the CDD. And it's quite contentious, it's shameful when you look at the fact that for years we've not been able to properly manage electoral logistics in the country. But it tells a story also of a lack of governance and infrastructural development, which you do not expect to come up all of a sudden like this. Then the turnout is a very big factor in these elections. Yes, there is a downward turnout. The highest turnout in the history of the country was in 2003 with 69% turnout. 1999, 52.3% turnout. And the last election was 43.4. We approximated it to like 44% turnout. So here we have 35% turnout, unlinked to the fact that the election was postponed and the failure of democracy to also deliver development to people violent. But the turnout is a factor post-elections because the turnout, and one of the reasons the election is actually being rejected, because the turnout in some parts of the country is quite different from the common compared to other parts of the country. But nobody is looking at this from a historical context, for instance, where elections in the Southeast has consistently been the lowest. And we often say they are Republican in nature and they do not really vote. But they do have reasons to vote in these elections, being that this is the first time they will have an opportunity to have a go at the vice presidency in the country since this 20 years of democracy. Then the cancellation of votes, which I've earlier mentioned. The fact that also rigging elections or a way of skewing elections have also become very, very sophisticated. So in 2015, I remember we were, Professor Adetula was with us at the CDD Analysis Center. We were looking at disruption was the big issue, that you go to your position stronghold, you disrupt the elections. That happened during these elections, but it went a top notch higher is the destruction of electoral materials. So you don't have to stop ballot again because with a smart card reader, you would be, uh, technology has made it very, very difficult to do that. It will not match, but you can actually destroy the votes and where this destruction actually happened, making it not to count. Then violence, which has been highly instrumentalized, such that some people put the death rate at 70, some say it's 39. For us on election day, we counted over 20, minus that inflicted by Boko Haram in the elections. And the challenge of security and the active role they played in 2019 election can be compared to what happened during the 2007 elections. So these elections has actually exacerbated tension in the country along ethnic lines particularly for somebody like me that comes from a cosmopolitan Lagos where everybody is your neighbor. You don't care where anybody, we are just one family. Religion, ethnicity do not really play a part in terms of who gets what and how we relate. So it has exacerbated tension and we are looking at what happens in the following day. But again, who are the real winners of the elections? The election just concluded is the Nigerian citizen. There is actually a positive in terms of the logistical nightmare which the ambassador, every of the ambassador and the high commissioners kept telling me about what they saw in the eyes of Nigerians, the resilience, the fact that for five hours, despite what was happening, they were not, they were determined to cast their ballot. 
So this is a very strong point and the beginning of holding government accountable. Now, win or loss, there is no victor, there is actually no vanquished because there are important issues at stake. And one of the most important issues is healing the divide in the nation. Before now, since 20, historically everybody is marginalized in Nigeria. But since the last four years, people have kind of instrumentalized, either real or perceived marginalization. And everybody must have heard about the Biafra separationist. When read alongside what happened on Saturday, it further raises the tension then across country. So where President Buhari's first task will be to heal the country. The second task before him will now be the economy. Now we can talk about no need for blame games and going into history and saying the fact that we have never been in recession for more than two decades. Uh, but the fact remains that he will have to emphasize on youth addressing unemployment, and in particular, youth unemployment in a country with over 60% of its young people, 60% uh, of its population as young people. And also having a monetary policy different from an economic policy and seeing that to play. And alongside what is happening in the world today, Brexit, uh, the price of oil, and of course, Trump America. But security is also a very fundamental issue, which would be a priority for who wins the elections. And that is who has won. I still keep saying who, who <laughs> so the, the election is already won. In 2015, majorly it was Boko Haram. Now we have different types of insecurity pervading five out of the six geopolitical zones of the country. So dealing with insecurity, and particularly not from a militaristic approach, remains priority for this administration. And pursuing accountability is very, very key. Now, handling corruption is something that must happen, but we have to start looking at corruption for, from a political sentiment approach, that of coordination and inclusive uh, corruption, when you just don't focus on the top level or politically exposed people, but you fight corruption at all levels of government so that governance, people can begin to actually see governance in its, uh, itself. But fundamentally for the elections, it brings up the issue of the need for an holistic electoral reform. Because without an holistic electoral reform, in the, the, the gains the gains of yesteryears will be lost. And gradually, uh, which is something that no Nigeria wants. So when they are saying there is no demand for democracy out there in the global north, in the global south, more and more people do have a demand for democracy, even if it brings nothing on the table, but because of the fundamental rights that it provides to the people. Thank you. What is left for me to say? <laughs> um, I, I'll start off uh, commenting on uh, what you introduced uh, early on. I mean, why do you, would you expect the Nigerian elections to be different from Nigeria in uh, the, the daily life of Nigerians? 
But that's what uh, Nigeria is measured from. I mean, they are measured from uh, general uh, rules and regulations and, uh, and how you uh, expect uh, elections to be seen. Um, and uh, they're they free and fair. Um, did they reflect the aspirations of the Nigerian people? Um, I think we, we have to look into the defin definition of democracy, uh, the part of elections in a democratic society, what role the elections play. Um, and think maybe somehow out of the box uh, on that issue. Uh, looking on the um, immediate reason for, I mean, th there's a lot of criticism of the, on the elections and um, uh, that it's not reflecting the really, uh, the actual figures. I think we have, uh, for the immediate reasons, uh, they are, as you have been touching upon, organizational, it's the role of INEC, the local interest in, in elections, the, uh, the, the party and the party agents interest, security role. And I just use, I, I, I um, observed the elections in Abuja and Nazarava. And uh, I, I said uh, that it's probably the worst and the best I've seen of uh, conducting elections on the African continent, and I have observed in a few African countries. In Abuja, more or less perfect. I mean, uh, I commented it like, I mean, it could have been Switzerland. But just across the border to Nazarava, it was completely chaos. I came out to uh, observe the counting in Nazarava. Uh, just kilometers out of the Buja, and they hadn't started voting by two o'clock when everything should have been uh, over. And they kept on until late evening. So, the, I mean, I think we have to ask ourselves the question, why is it possible one kilometer down the road to, uh, to conduct the elections absolutely perfectly, and two kilometers down the road, uh, it's, it's a complete chaos. Is it deliberate? Why is it, why is it happening? I think we have to go through these elections uh, in that way. There, there's a huge dilemma for both local observers to elections and for international ele election observers because, I mean, you're sort of forced to comment on it immediately after the elections, even before the res results it, uh, is out. And then you can't comment because you can't uh, make yourself an actor in the electoral play. So then statements are, uh, do not rock the boat. And uh, then, as we have seen today, President Buhari takes advantage of the comments from the international observers and said, no criticism. And then the reports will be out in three months time with a lot of criticism of the whole election period, because this is the learning experience for, for the next election. So I think international observation, local observation, there's some dilemmas, and I think there has to be a discussion on what are the role of international uh, electoral observation. Coming to the broader issues, um, I think uh, obviously there, uh, there's the demographic distribution issue. Uh, there hasn't been a census since 2006. Uh, no one knows what are the number of people in Nigeria. And if you look at the uh, results, uh, go to Borno, Bauchi, Gombe, Chigawa, Kano, Katsina, Kevin, Niger, Samfara, Yoba. The numbers are really high numbers. And they have decided the elections. And the, then the, uh, in, in the southern part, much lower participation. So no census, no real uh, idea about the number of people. 
uh, which means it, it will be also be reflected in the voter registration, in the mobilization, and in the turnout, and eventually in the, in the result of the, of the elections. And this brings us, I believe, to the zonal system. I mean, the gentleman's agreement that the president should come from the north for eight years and then come to, uh, from the south for eight years. Has people voted out of loyalty to this system? I mean, the decision for the people that, I mean, you don't have a free choice. It's uh, every, every second period it should come from, from either north or south. Um, people in the south might have voted tactically because if Atiko had won, he would have had a, a constitutional right to stand for eight years and run again, which would have disturbed the possibility for, for Southerners to, to uh, elect their president in, in 2023. <laughs> um, you touched upon ethnicity. Obviously, it has, uh, it has affected the result. I think, uh, I mean, uh, many Northerners asked why uh, another Northerner challenged the incumbent. Um, and um, uh, both um, ethnicity and religion plays into that and for, for, for people to vote accordingly. Um, many people said that money played a much smaller role this time than, uh, than four years ago. Um, I, w I, I was not there four years ago, but um, money plays a role, I mean, both in, I mean, it, it, it's so important for access to government and, and, and to, um, to money through the to uh, place in government, uh, but also money is a part of the electoral process. Uh, it played most people say a, a, a lesser role than, than the last time. Uh, then I mean for the, the low turnout, it was so extremely low. I mean, 35 percent is low, and, and there was some. I mean, the, the electoral mood. Uh, pointed to a higher participation. So and you have touched upon a number of the, of the reasons for the low turnout. But also another one was, would, would be also, I mean, if people do not see any benefits from coming, coming from government and, they, and you don't have a real alternative to the incumbent government, why would you care to go and vote? I mean, there, there's no, nothing coming from government to, 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 to your community. I think it has to be uh, considered also. Media play the role. Uh, written media is, I think, the main newspapers are, have a circulation of 35,000 copies. Social media, I don't know what, what the, I mean, is it the grapevine which is most important? I, I don't know. I talked to OBS Sally, uh, and uh, she believed in social media. She didn't even uh, last until the last round um, of the elections, which could also have with money and other, other issues. To do. Um, I mean, for me, um, the, the real problem is uh, the political, as you both mentioned, the political party structure, the political party culture. Uh, how do you expect to have a fully fledged democracy if the political parties internally are not democratic? I mean, there, there's no internal democracy in, uh, in the parties. Um, Article one, because uh, his war chest was bigger than any of the other contestants in, in the PDP. Um, we met with a lot of women who had won the primaries, but who were, I mean, substituted by the party leadership, even though they won the primaries in their own party. 
there's no real party organization, so I, I think you, you mentioned that clearly. I mean, there, there's no political programs in the parties. Uh, Artiku ran on his, uh, on his manifesto to become, but there was no internal discussion, no uh, voting inside the party what should be the political program of the party. The same with the, the, um, the ruling party uh, run on the same kind of platform as they developed last time, but there was no uh, discussion in the party of what, what should be the, there's no political uh, ideological differences, there's no real interest politics. So um, any of the political parties more or less are uh, vehicles to, uh, uh, on the road to power. Um, if you look at the candidates, so many were PDP yesterday and APC today and uh, PDP again tomorrow. Um, so I think, I mean, I think we have to, or Nigeria, the Nigerian political parties and politicians do have to start uh, on the process of really creating political parties which will be representing different interests in society. And um, I, 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 um, Camilla and I, we are comrades uh, uh, <laughs> with the trade unions. I attended the NLC Congress and Femi Falana was there and he said, Get rid of the outdated politicians, the political parties, create a new party, organize, organize, and you can change uh, Nigeria. Um, I think uh, he's on to uh, something which should be considered. Thank you. Good, I have for once in my life been privileged to to ask questions to the panel before we give the floor. So um, uh, I have tons of questions. I'll stick to try to sum up and make them some big, but I want to grab what you ended by saying of, uh, of um, the need for mobilizing and also challenging the old elite. Because a lot of the, the media discussions and comments on this uh, election has been that this may, may be the last time of the old elites with two 70 plus year old candidates uh, running for election and next time come 2023. Uh, and uh, maybe I am looking for some, some inspiration and, and uh, uh, organization um, when I look at social media and through my friends. But, but there are also uh, analysts saying that now the young generation may think differently, at least some. Maybe if we look back at the Occupy Nigeria 2012, there was a generation of young activists that had not had the democracy history of the 90s, uh, but was repoliticized in that. Uh, some people say that they are not necessarily engaged at the national level, but are more engaged on local level, on mobilization and organization. Um, so, so my question to you is basically, so how do you see this on the ground? Do we see a difference in the next generation? Is there a youth mobilization? Uh, or are my friends just overtly optimist when they report that there are talks now of remobilizing already for 2023? Well, like I noted that uh, 
there is, as part of the new trend, increased visibility that's connected with the concern for the expansion of the political space to accommodate the young people. And of course, we see a formal response that came in the form of the enactment of a law, uh, not too young to run. Whether it was hijacked and politicized is another thing. Good at the formal level. But if we go concretely, politics, especially electoral politics, party politics, is about organization. That is not yet there among the younger people. Why it is not there could be, oh, is it that they don't have the resources or they don't have the experience? But what I can say, as somebody observing, is that it is not yet there. And it gives me concern that you, you see, and I, 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 I challenge Ribado at another seminar a long time ago. Ribado used to be the anti-corruption sir in Nigeria. And I said, I'm a university teacher. And I've seen the young people. And I've seen the value, the dominant values they express. And each time I've seen that happening, I keep wondering if tomorrow will be better than today. Because it's like, let us go and occupy and have our own time. It's different from let's go and occupy and make a change. So the ideological defects of the movement itself is a concern for us. But that is not to say it's a total loss. Part of the, the trend we are having uh, is, is a product of the failure of the, pre, the older generation to inculcate the appropriate value system. How it will come and we have a transformation uh, is a concern for some of us. For me, I think um, it is not only about the younger people. The entire population needs a new reorientation and it is that that will spill over and with that level we start recording some generational connection. Last point on that. This is not the first time that we're hearing the yearning for people and is being hijacked. President Babangida came up with an idea. Uh, I think what, I mean, about encouraging young people, let younger people, I think he even banned some so-called old politician. It was the era where legislation, laws, degrees were enacted to ban certain people, and they were tagged old politician, let's give room for the younger one. That movement was hijacked by the money bag. And it turned out to be the contractors that were receiving money from the military that dominated the political scene. That's the era that, pro I don't want to mention names here, that produced some of the ones that we are celebrating today as the old politician, unfortunately. I think I've had the story too. But I think it's very important to also note that this is the first election where people who were born after return to democracy voted for. 
So it's a complete fear. They don't know what military rule is all about. They just know what democracy is. So it brings about an hunger in people. Then the Not Too Young to Run Act has also galvanized a lot of people to get involved in the political fair. But the galvanizing is just like for the major parties, they, are, they did not get uh, um, tickets. But for the fringe parties, they've gotten tickets. And some of them have even already emerged winner. There is a young um, person who is just around 35 who has won this, a seat in Ondo State, SDP. As, yes, her whole party, but still a fringe party. So we, as we look at the results and we look ahead for the next elections coming on the uh, next weekend again, um, we will see what happens. But there is actually a conclusion that this election is the last elections of the generals because automatically they have been retired. And we continue to say that even the ones, some have been retired politically and some will also be retired otherwise. So 2023 is going to be a new beginning. And the plan for 2023 is not actually to start planning a year to the elections. It's to start planning immediately after May 29th. So there are already plans for women involvement in politics where we are planning to go on en masse for the next four years and see what will happen. The same is ongoing for youth participation in politics. So they may not necessarily become president in 2023, but we expect to see more young people um, voted into office. And it, takes, it will take at least two electoral circles. Then it will also need a political shock for it to happen. very good to hear. Uh, let me be the devil's advocate. <laughs> if you ask anyone who will be the presidential candidates or a candidate of APC next time, which name will come up? Sinubu. <laughs> <laughs> He's in his 70s. No, no, who was the proponent of the third force for this election? Obasanjo. He is not going to run again. He's retired. He's retired. <laughs> but, uh, and, and I think that's, uh, I mean, uh, it was to see how the third force, uh, I mean, it didn't develop. I mean, Obasanjo abandoned it and they supported Artiko. Yeah. It could have happened if he had continued supporting it, mm -hmm. but it needs some real solid support uh, to have a, a third force coming up. And uh, I think that's, that's where um, you could see some hope, but um, you also saw it crumble because uh, the main actors who could have led the third force couldn't agree who was going to step down and who was going to promote it. So uh, again, this, this is back to organizational, uh, organizational challenges and, and getting a real democratic organizations to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to run the show. Can I also be the devil's advocate to the devil's advocate? <laughs> uh, I think it's interesting actually to compare Nigeria to the US. And think that even though if we look at the top, it may not be the most encouraging when we look at the presidential candidates, but if you look at the, the some specific women in Senate now, very radical young people coming in. So, so because I'm often frustrated with analysis of Nigeria that tends to kind of 
reinforce the story of it's the same, it's the same, it's the same. Whereas there are things happening on the ground, so just to try to. <laughs> um, I also have a question because uh, my, my Twitter friend who is optimist on, uh, on this uh, election being uh, about class and ideology and reinvention of Marxism, Maybe he's exaggerating a little bit, but I think he had uh, a, an interesting point because we often talk about Nigeria as lacking of ideology because politics is about ethnicity and personality. And his suggestion is that that exactly is a type of ideology that suggests the idea that ethnicity is the basis for politics. That, and we have to challenge that. By, by, by suggesting different ways of understanding politics. Does that make sense? <laughs> no. Uh, it's just to throw it on the floor as a thought. But uh, ethnicity is also systematically the ground for politics in Nigeria through federalism and the structure of, of, uh, of uh, the state and, uh, and where we vote, etc. I read somewhere that now the very structure of federalism is on the table and Buhari wants to challenge that. Have you heard about such a suggestion and do you think that Buhari will do anything here? Okay. <laughs> I, I think... Uh, there is need to separate the issues and to bring them together first. The classroom notion of ideology is not what we imply when we talk about the political parties not having ideology. Perhaps what we're talking about is organized idea, organized program of engaging in governance. That is it. As different from the big concept, ideology, Marxism, is no, I think that's another level. And what we're saying is that the, it is not easy for the people to see the program, to identify the political parties with program, with policies, and see it I, I, I don't like to make comparison between the North and the South easily because I have my reservation even about the Northern countries, even though I live in Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> it is not possible today for EU to bring an agricultural policy and the farmers will not react in Europe. That is what we are talking about. Where people can say, okay, this policy, this taxation, this, listen to all the campaigns, you don't have those specific issues that look, this is what we're going to do about tax. This is what's going to happen to the health of the younger people, the health of the older people, you don't hear that. You just hear blanket things. I think that is it. The second point is about the whole discourse around restructuring and federalism. Uh, I think to date, President Buhari or APC 
like every other person I've been engaging the issue at different levels. But what is clear from the perspective of Nigerians is that there is yearning for restructuring, which is coming out of the frustration with the existing system. The existing system has not guaranteed livelihood for majority of Nigeria. And it has supported fraud and corruption because power corrupt, absolute power corrupt, absolute over-centralization of power, which the practice of Nigerian federalism has brought, has not benefited majority of the people. But there is consensus. Now let me go back to your class <laughs> analysis. There is consensus among the members of the political class to have a so-called united Nigeria. Because the interest of the upper class is better served <laughs> by the so-called united Nigeria. Because they don't quarrel in the boardroom when the dividend and the profit has been shared. So that is one point. Ethnicity, and I keep saying this, is never the issue. Ethnicity is not the issue in Nigerian politics. It is the politicization of identities, including ethnicity. At the point at which my access to position and to wealth and to economic opportunity is on the basis of my identity, then people challenge it, they react, they respond to it. But if identity, including ethnicity, religion, are left at the level, oh, who am I? I'm a Yoruba from southern Nigeria. Like in, the, in France, I, I was in France, and they say, oh, those of us from Paris, we hold our glass of wine like this. <laughs> and I've seen it even where I live. People say, oh, I'm from northern Sweden. I'm from southern Sweden. But it does not translate directly to the access to wealth and opportunity. I think that is the question. And I think importantly, ethnicity or religion cannot be a basis of, ide of ideology. It's even against the constitution of Nigeria, which says that political parties must draw their ideology from chapter two of the constitution, which is basically fundamental principles or, and directive uh, of state policy what is education, all those things that we should actually be applicable to better the lives of the people. And, but the problem with using ethnicity is, and religion is the instrumentalization, like Professor Adetola said it. And when we talk about lack of ideology, we talk about lack of plans, which the ambassador are further widened, that is a lack of consultation. So all the previous party manifesto in Nigeria, in fact, when we did the manifesto analysis of the 91 political parties this time around, we discovered like 31 do not, did not have anything uploaded. We had to come and start uh, uh, speaking to them personally. Then 33 political parties had the same manifesto, just changed the name, you know, find and replace. But again, while that is a challenge, this is the first time that there is actually a difference in the party plans of the two political parties, the two, two dominant parties. It's just because they did not go to speak about it. When you read the article plan, which is 100 plus pages, you discover that it's so pro-business. 
It's so explicit saying that I shall not provide any form of social welfare palliative, but I am going to work on skills acquisition. Then you go to Buari plan. You see Buari, we say, I'll create 5 million jobs. I'll give 500,000 people more social uh, intervention, place them on social intervention scheme. They had all these differences. It's just less than 11 page for the Buari plan, but the article plan is larger. But the challenge now that you now have a difference is it has no implementation plan and it's merely aspirational. And when people are on the campaign trail, they, don't, they tend not to talk about it. When issues started, uh, came up, Atiku was talking more about restructuring, 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 which made him again to become an anti-Northern candidate because the question of restructuring then ostracized him from where he's actually from because restructuring is seen to be more championed by the Southerner. Then the problem with restructuring is what exactly does restructuring mean? It differs depending on who you are actually putting the question to. So restructuring to some might mean the creation of additional state for the southeastern part of the country, saying that every state has, uh, every geopolitical zone has six states, maximum seven in the north central. We have only five states. Another governor in the north, south, south will say, but I have only eight local governments whereas Kano has 44 local government, then who gets more power? Who, it's a matter of who gets what, and in lack of definition and acceptance or agreement really on what restructuring will entail. And of course, Professor Aditu Allah is a Buarist. I'm a Nigerian. <laughs> uh, President Buari has not at any point in time walk towards making restructuring an action. The APC held values, invited all of us to submit paper, uh, constitute it to its committee on restructuring. But till date, nothing has actually happened on restructuring. So politicization of this issue. But it's not whatever name it comes, it is. The most important thing is that there is a need to have a national conversation amongst Nigerians. And the national conversation is something that have always happened, with the, with the last being the national conference, or CONFAB as we call it, in 2014. But again, this CONFAB are never reflective. It will have few women. We don't know who chose the people to go there. They all go to talk about what actually pleases them, such that it is not accepted by the generality of the populace. And I think that's the main problem with Nigeria. It's not most of these problems, like we exacerbate them and hacked, like we have all the problems in the world. Other countries have as much problems. But coming to an agreement and inclusion is very, very key and fundamental. The, the issue of the federal system is extremely complicated and I, I don't think you really, I mean, I, I discussed it early in the election campaign with Atiku, uh, but he, he seemed to uh, stop mentioning it in the, in, in, in the campaign because it would, as you said, it would have uh, made him less, uh, less popular in the North who benefit from the system. So it's, um, 
then uh, I talked, uh, I mean, my colleagues in and ambassadors uh, usually talk mainly to the middle class and, and the really rich. So every ambassador in, uh, in Abuja believed that Etiko would win. <laughs> because he had, as you said, a political program with, which was a so, uh, liberal program, economic, uh, uh, and pro-business. Uh, so all people we talked to believed he would win. Um, the um, Emir Onkano, who is uh, a politician, but is also a religious leader. <laughs> he made a statement uh, reflecting to what you said uh, last year, that uh, the struggle is not between the farmers and the herders, between the Nordners and the Southerners, between the Hausa Ibo, between um, uh, ethnicities or religions. It's between the rich and the poor. And uh, I think that was reflected in the election results. If, if you believe that APC won the majority, it's because of the uh, rural poor in the north who really voted for Buhari. So that's also where, I mean, and I, um, what, what you said about the political programs, if there are, um, and I, I think you're right, there are differences in these political programs, but then there has to be more focus on the political programs within the party and, and uh, in the presentation to the people of what are the policies. Then you can move towards um, what I started saying, that the political party structure and culture has to, has to change. Thank you. Uh, time is uh, open for the floor. I have noted Rolf. Uh, and uh, the rest of you can uh, raise your hands. Uh, and I'll try to keep track of you. Uh, meanwhile, while uh, Rolf come, you need to speak in the phone, uh, microphone. Uh, I just want to ask uh, Idayat maybe just one question on following up on, uh, on this uh, question of rich and poor. Um, we now see that oil prices are going up, so we may have more money in the coffin in the, in the state budget. But what will, do, do we have any plan? Do, is there any hope that there will be a better life for, for Nigerians in the coming four period? Sure. <laughs> I think it's, um, that's a difficult question without being pessimistic. Even if Atiku has won the elections, managing expectation will be the next thing to actually do. And oil prices will never reach the all-time all high of a over $100 like it was a few years ago. Yes, will there be better life? I think better life will be relative and it might be in a different part of the country. So if you look at the, if you look at the, some of the plans and how, why Bwari won the election, I can explain it further. <clears throat> because most of the policies that he embarked upon are also working very well in the northern part of the country. So if you look at the social intervention program, who has benefited the most from it? If you look at the, um, the uh, we call this Anchor Borrowers program, which targets the rice farmers, it's largely in northern Nigeria. So when the elites in Abuja were complaining, then I speak to my junior colleagues and I ask them and they tell me, um, director, director, the more you people hate Buari, the more the peasants love him. The one told me, he said, do you know that in our, in our community, who went to Hajj the most this year without government sponsorship? It was the young people. 
maximum 25 years of age, and they were farmers. With the fertilizer policy, with some of the soft loan, their life became better compared to the southern parts of the country, which might not be favorable. Again, not because it's also necessarily skewed, but if you put agriculture as a priority of the government, the north is largely agrarian. Uh, I think because, because of the, the pod podcast system, we need to speak in phone. So, Gina, you also need to just, yeah, queue up and wait. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, it's a few years since I left Nigeria in 2016. But, and I have a question. But before I come to that question, I have a few sort of statements to make. I mean, uh, the uh, level of participation was probably considerably lower than uh, what is stated by INEC. Look at Lagos, Lagos State, population of around 23 million people at least. Uh, 580,000 votes was enough for Buhari to, to win. The what was total vote was just above 1 million. So you have a uh, half of the population would probably be in the age group eligible to vote. So you are looking at about 10% of the people of Lagos that were eligible to vote, not registered necessarily, voted. Uh, if you look at, at the statistics for the states uh, around Nigeria, you will have somewhat higher uh, percentage of votes, but, but not much, uh, I mean, in the 20s, roughly, all over. So for people, elections is about electing members of the political class and ensuring particular members of the class access to decisions and access to personal riches. Uh, this class is, is pretty limited and it's pretty fixed. There are not many going in and out, but every election, some are going in and by, uh, some are going out and, and by use of quite uh, illegitimate means, mostly. So for people not to vote, they have very good reasons. Why participate in this uh, charade of, of making uh, some people rich by them gaining access to power and position? So the question about politics and ideology is for me a question, are there any bases in Nigeria for mobilizing a sort of broad coalition of counterforces that can uh, change the dynamics that has been pointing in, 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 in a consistent direction for, for so many years, at least during the, uh, during the 20 years of, of, of electoral democracy. You, Victor, you mentioned um, an increasing sense of the need of integrity in politics. And Camilla, you mentioned uh, civil society organizations, you also mentioned them, uh, also. And, and what are the civil society organizations that could take on such a role? Do they exist? And I asked you, Victor, before we started that, I mean, 
the, 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 the various churches and religious, Christian religious organizations, they, they really organize a lot of people. The same with the uh, Muslim ulamas, uh, communities in the Middle Belt, and, but also in South and, and in the North. Do you, and, and for me, that is a civil society. This kind of, of sitting together under a, a relig religious umbrella, does, do, you, do you assess this as holding some potential for carrying uh, a strengthened uh, sense of the need for, for integrity in politics? Simple question and comment. <laughs> I don't know who, uh, if you all want to comment or if someone feels the urge. Yeah. I, I think um, starting with uh, registration uh, before these elections, we conducted some um, analysis on the historical trend, and the ambassador Wolf is actually right because when you look at the margin, the proportion of registered voter to the population, although census is a big challenge, you find that it's always lower than 14%, and also turnout increasingly is lower. The last turnout in Lagos was 24%, but this last election, we just have like 16% uh, turnout also. So it's very, very huge in terms of our turnout, and we know the reason is because of democracy, the fear of violence, and the nature of politics. More and more people are getting enlightened and they are beginning to see the political actors involved for their own gain, not really for the benefit of the people. But where are the mobilizing points? I think the challenge with Nigerian civil society is most of them are located more at the national level. And that's part of the donor politics also. It's not everybody that has the legitimacy to go to the grassroots and mobilize people. Then people should know their strengths, which doesn't necessarily happen because it's a, it's, it's a pot of money and people want to contest at, in fact, it's contest, it's not to vie for it, just the way it's politics really is about. So it doesn't allow money to trickle to the grassroots where the real people are able to do work that will be consistent. You can ask, what will be the voice of an idiot if I go to the local community? I don't speak their language. I have no legitimacy. They necessarily do not. They will not even look up to me. But if I go to the policymaker, they go, she's a troublemaker. Let's listen to her, CDD, something. People should recognize their clout. Donor community will have to recognize that. And Nigerians themselves will have to make a decision. And that is why more and more we are not talking about coalition. Because coalition of politics have not worked. That's why the third force failed. Is this, in the same vein, coalition of civil society is not also worked historically. And more and more, we have to work and look at how we can have movements succeed. And movements succeeding without any donor money. Because the history of Not Too Young to Run was because there was no overt donor money. Everybody contributed their quota to it. Not necessarily money, nobody was paid to come to the rally, nobody was asked to participate. People took it up because they felt that it's part of their own, uh, it's their future and it's something that must necessarily 
happen. Unless we relocate that, we start um, to the spaces where people must work and we do not just focus on the political class, there will not be change. Now, for the churches and the mocks, they are part of the civil society. And these elections actually, some of us had actually posited that it might be decided from the pulpit because they, paid, they played an active role. One, in mobilization of people to register. It became a talking point in the churches in particular. They started their own campaign, even going beyond their churches to the streets to solicit people to register to vote in their elections. But by the time it became closer, there was an attempt to adopt a candidate. It didn't work, but also there was an attempt to demarket some, a particular candidate also, which did not, uh, which has actually rebounded. Then the same also happened in, the, in Northern Nigeria with the clerics. Now they came and they had little videos of sermons on Friday where they were preaching and using disinformation at its form. For instance, talking about the uh, vice presidential flag bearer of PDP as being one of the officers who led the, who led the, uh, the 1966 coup d'etat. Peter Obi was barely five years. He must have been one of the youngest uh, uh, colonel in the history of Nigeria. He must have been a genius. Then also whipping up ethnic and so ethnic sentiments in the election. So they did, not, they did not actually portray themselves well. And they are, but even that, they do have a huge role they are playing, both at the national and at some people during the local elections. What will evolve will become very, very open. And for people who actually look at politics more, even within the faith, there are contradictions. So you see the Izala, who are the Halisuna, just like anything, you can call them Boko Haram, the Tijania movement. All these different strands do support different sets of people. The same way the Pentecostal church or the Catholic or the Anglican faith are very powerful in different parts of the country. But positively channeling their energy to a good cause is what is missing. I just want to footnote what Yad uh, has said. Uh, and I think from the point she raised that uh, the religious organizations have become part of the contradiction. And that is very challenging. For it creates another layer of problem. And I can, uh, I can read with you. Conceptually, the churches, the monks, the monks, they are part of the civil society. I live in the Nordic now, and each time I see something happen where I live, and uh, in reaction, the membership of the church decrease by significant percentage because of a reaction to what they perceive to be a fraud in the church. And that was very interesting for me. And I, and I joke with my colleague, I say, Omar, back home in Nigeria, you dare not challenge the pastor for using money this way. That's part of the contradiction. So it helps us to understand if they can be part of the vanguard for a change. <laughs> 
even beyond election. But again, they don't know community. What we celebrate in the country today as the civil society is the, is the monster created by the donor's money. That is it, which is different from the civil society or the civil society. Has it ever happened in the political history of Nigeria? If you go to the period of the nationalist struggle, the civil society where the market women association, the farmers association, and that was the basis of the early political parties. And through that, there was correct political sensitization and mobilization as different from, and what happened to that? That was hijacked and destroyed by the military. So taking off of the new civil society, or if you like, the post-independent civil society was through the donor's uh, money. And that we were looking for civil society that have registration in the bank, not connected with the people. And I think that has been a big challenge. We do hope that uh, with prayers in the churches and the moxies, uh, we will go back. <laughs> uh, I see the time is, is 19.30, but the organizers have told me that it's okay to expand a little. If anyone needs to go, just sneak out, but I'll allow Gina her question, and I see no more hands. Uh, I'll <clears throat> Thank you very much, uh, all four of you. I'll make it very brief and uh, maybe an ending question, but could you reflect a little bit about the coming four-year period? Is there something that Buhari started uh, that he might be able to see through? Uh, what do you, thinking four years ahead, um, what do you see? That's an excellent question for ending. Could, Chima, do you want to just, is it okay if Chima gives his question? And, and uh, because Gina's question is an excellent way of kind of summing up. So I'll, yeah. Yeah, please. Uh, my name is Chime, and um, I represent the Young Progressive Party in Norway. And um, uh, before I came out, I saw that my party has rejected the outcome of the election. And, um, <laughs> And the reasons are not, you know, far-fetched because of the violence, the widespread rigging, the irregularities, you know. In my state, uh, a returning officer who was supposed to re report the election, return the result of the election, was held hostage for more than 24 hours with policemen and thugs and they were forcing him to change the result of the election. So, you know, they were, we have videos of thumbprinting what people vote and the result is different from the outcome. The politicians who go to their, in their houses and thumbprint, and when people vote, they change the ballot and bring the thumbprinted, you know, you know sheets. So there were widespread irregularities. So some of the, you know, my party, the PDP, they've rejected <coughs> the outcome. So my question is, um, what faith do we have in the judicial system to give justice to those who have been deprived of justice? Thank you. 
That's two. Is it okay to, to do the two questions combined? One regarding the judiciary and, uh, and the likeliness of, of justice happening in, in uh, given the, the rejection of elections from PDP, YPP and others. And secondly, Ina's question on, on uh, if Buhari has started something that we'll see through the next four years that will be particularly interesting. And you can have two, three minutes each and then spend it also by no, I, I think I will concentrate more since I've been publicly identified as Bukharist. <laughs> yeah, that's a joke. Um, I, I think I, I, I share part of your concern. You use the mic. Okay, sir. Yeah. Your concern about that. Um, I want us to look back and see. I was sharing with some colleagues and said uh, that... Uh, uh, going to court is not new in Nigeria. I think uh, with the exception of uh, 2015 when uh, former President Jonathan did the unusual, there had never been any of this election that was not uh, contested in the court, if that record is right, maybe I can prove that. Um, but whether going the legal way will guarantee the justice is another thing. And I'm not saying that because I don't have confidence in the judiciary or not. And I said something while I was making my brief presentation about the need to look again at the legal framework of election in Nigeria. I think uh, maybe that is the way to start um, before we <laughs> get to the other thing, because the judge or the lawyers who interpret from the point of law and point of fact, I think, and uh, not some of the sentiment which somebody like me or any other activist uh, will carry. As for what, what will happen in the next four years, so many things can happen <laughs> in the next four years. And this morning when I was thinking about today, I, I think about three possibilities or scenario, and I said, a Buhari that will not change. That is one, a Buhari that will not change. That's a look, I don't have problem coming for a second or third term, so I want to continue what I have started. And I think he said during the campaign that I will be consistent and I will not change. But I, I took that to mean that I will be consistent with the policies and programs and I will not disappoint you. That's a possibility. In that sense, the three key programs, another related one, anti-corruption, security, economy, diversification of the economy will continue. But another scenario is a Buhari that will be responsive to some of the issues that came up around the campaign. Oh, you are, in, you are not listening to us. You are inflexible. People are suffering. You are not addressing, you know, the private sector, you know, a lot of other issues. Oh, you are not opening the economy. You are not encouraging the investors. There may be some slight adjustment in terms of style. Another is a Buhari that would change completely. I don't see the possibility of that. 
happening. If you look at the personality of Buhari himself, he's less of a politician, but a firm soldier. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Professor Adetula now lives in the Nordic. And you know, um, my colleagues are from around the world. We often joke that when you want a free lunch, go to any of the Nordic country. That's the only place you can have, and you are guaranteed a free lunch. Yeah. Actually, I think the, first the most important issue that bothers us at this point in time back home is the issue of standards. In most times, the not do not expect so much from us. In fact, I was talking to a colleague and we were differentiating procedural and substantive democracy. It's as if the minimum standard is welcome when it comes to politics on the continent. And it also encourages some of these uh, practices to go on unhindered. And one point, since I'm concluding, I picked up and which I'm actually going to work on is the need for us not to immediately issue statements immediately after an election, both as local and international observers, because we end up legitimizing what should actually not be legitimized. And looking at qualitative and quantitative data. So for us at the CDD, during the elections, we had a lot of hub. We went so IT tech, aside from having our analyst. But what our data was actually telling us were not, cannot be substantiated if you look at it uh, analytically. We could not really. We could not say why all the opening was at between uh, 7.30 and 7.30 opened polls, but election did not commence at 9 o'clock. What could be the reason for that if you just start giving out, shelling out data in itself? So these two issues are very big issues, and they are, not, they are issues that the international community helped to legitimize or they also um, be against. And it's going to be a very a big challenge in these elections and the need to look at elections more differently. Now, in terms of the jurisprudence of elections, even if it goes, it's not about no faith in court. After Zimbabwe, with a group of other uh, colleagues across the continent, we pulled all the election petitions and we were reviewing it not just as an academic exercise, because after Kenya, we became very, very interested and jeered up. And we discovered that with the exception of Kenya, there is no election that has been overturned. And Kenya was basically procedural because they did not follow certain rules as victim in the electoral law, which is what Professor Adetula is actually speaking to. What, how much is the irregularities? Is that irregularity enough to mar the outcome of the process? Then the burden of proof in election petition differs. How are you able to prove substantial irregularity in itself? What do you have on the table? And when the international community will come and say PVT has legitimized, but we all know what the process has actually told us that this is a process matter, and this will not stand anywhere in the world. So the likelihood of that case flying in court we, is very new. And again, the argument will be inched on the card reader. 
And don't forget that post-2015 elections, we had lots of cases with Wike and Amechi, uh, Wike and Dakuku Peter side, the Akwai bomb case. All these cases failed because they inched their argument on the card reader, the smart card reader, which we are calling as innovation. But our electoral law clearly states that the smart card reader cannot supplant the voter's register. So the evidence of everybody you see thumbprinting, thumbprinting, then PDP is asking that we want to match the smart card reader as against the voter register, is the voter's register that is recognized by law, not the smart card reader, which is just an innovation. But again, academic exercise is good for us, and the need for electoral, uh, electoral justice is very, very critical because it's the absence of electoral justice that often leads to violence post-elections. Then the doctrine of necessity will come in. We could not even manage this election. It cost us a lot of money. But assuming we say we should rerun the elections again, then the possibility of violence becomes higher. Then the justices of the Supreme Court, we sit and look at that, that which trump the order and they will decide. So it's not all the time that we think more of corruption, but the practical realities and what really standard means in our polity and what even people want to be upheld as standard differs and what is happening in the global community. Congo is an example. We are still grappling with DRC. We don't even know which is true, which is right again in terms of the narrative that is being fed us. Now, will Buhari do anything different? I don't know. I sit behind the Buhari meter, and I see what Buhari has done in the last close to four years, and I am able to give a, a good assessment of it. But I'm not really, I'm not negative, but I'm not overtly optimistic. But what is very important that he must actually do and is to unite the nation. Even if we achieve only unity post this election, it will be enough. Because the political class, they do not even want a divided Nigeria. Whose interest does this serve the most? Is that of the political class. Nobody wants to be a king in a very small part of the country. You prefer to be a king of over 191 million people itself. Then the fight against corruption. Maybe you can get it right. If what he has done in the last three and a half years is he has fought impunity. He has not fought corruption. So I am positive that maybe with his new coming, he can start thinking of how to actually wage a systematic war against corruption, and then we can feel the dividend of democracy in our life. I should be very short. I think uh, when it comes to the court cases we're going to see, uh, we can see already in the PDP motion that uh, they don't have a real case. They don't have the, any kind of proof. So I think uh, the best the court system can do is uh, um, manage these cases in a way that it can recreate some trust in society and between the two parties. Uh, that's the best. It, it's not going to change anything, but if they can handle it properly, it can recreate trust. Then I agree uh, very much with um, and uh, on the anti-corruption uh, fight. I think uh, Buhari is 
known to be stubborn. He's, going, he's not going to change. I think he will, if he managed and the government managed to change from, I mean, there was a lapse in the anti-corruption fight in the last uh, nine months or so, because then <laughs> you can't uh, rock the boat uh, in, in the middle of the election campaign. But if we manage to get that anti-corruption drive going again, and if, uh, I mean, the mandate of the EFCC to really run after the, the, the real corrupt people to get the, the, uh, the, the, the capacity to, to follow these cases through, uh, I think you could, they could start changing that political class's common interests. Because it's, um, uh, I think it's, it's based on the under-reporting of uh, oil exports and import, uh, oil imports or refined products imports. I mean, that there's uh, a certain part of the economy which benefits the, the whole political class. If that can be uh, changed by the anti-corruption commission and anti-corruption work, and it's done fairly across the political uh, class, then you could see some change within uh, the next four years. Thank you. Um, it's uh, past our time. Uh, I just want to thank all three of you for elaborate and insightful uh, interventions. I learned a lot. Uh, I think we can all say that to end up, we have to, where, where you all started, that Nigeria is now 20 years of a continuous democracy. There are huge challenges, but there's also opportunities. Even within the contradictory issues that we have had on the table today. So um, uh, I think Sandra wants to say a few words. Thank you very much, all four of you, for coming and uh, educating us all on Nigeria even more. Thank you all for coming today. It has been very great to see you all. If anyone uh, made more interest of Nigeria, we would love to have some more people joining our group. So please just come and see me after and we can organize that. Also take a look at the note at your chairs. Uh, it is a note that you can bring home, uh, tell friends, become a part of Felicidade for Africa. Give a big hand of applause to our great panel.